from really from the inception of this trip, we're asking like, what if, what if we created a different mission experience And we really believed that students absorb this. They're so much more deeply capable of understanding the need for cross-cultural ministry than I think we give them credit for. And I think, especially this generation, just they have an awareness and a sensitivity to these things. And they can they know the things that feel they feel weird, that feel off, where they're like, oh man, like there is dynamics happening. Like they understand those things, I think, often better than we do. And so I think we really were like, this generation gets the need for this. I think we could really do this. Welcome to Listener, a crew podcast. I'm your host, Sam Holland. Today's guest, Sako Otsuki Lee, serves on the West Coast Campus Mobilization Team. And because of her bicultural background, she has a unique lens on the topic of international missions. Enjoy the show. Could you just tell us a little bit about yourself, things like where are you from, how did you get involved with crew? Yeah, um, my name is Asako Otsuki-Lee. Uh, I was born in northern Japan, um, and then I moved actually to Boulder, Colorado when I was four. Um, I grew up there for about 10 years. And then I, my family and I moved back to Japan, to Kobe, Japan, where I attended high school. So I kind of have this very like back and forth bicultural kind of background. Um, and then I went to USC, University of Southern California for college here in Los Angeles. And I actually came to know the Lord in college um, and was exposed to crew through some friends who invited me to like a weekly meeting um, and really like encountered the gospel through kind of my ongoing like high ambition, high destructive life habit kind of cycle and um, was saved out of that. And so I like very distinctly remember even like my first crew weekly meeting, um, they're talking about like uh, like biblical freedom and like what that looks like. And I remember whoever was speaking was talking about um, anarchy versus freedom and like the difference of like what is like freedom is not just like the absence of rules, but like actually living within the bounds of um, the boundaries that God intended for us. And I remember that just like really struck a chord because I'd been living in kind of this ruleless life and um, ended up giving my life to the Lord at the end of that year and really just jumped into crew and campus ministry there. Um, I ended up interning at USC for two years um, and then joined staff the fall of 2019 and now serve on the West Coast mobilization team. Um, I live in Los Angeles here with my husband and I identify as being Japanese or first generation Japanese American. Um, and yeah, that kind of that, uh, my life existing in this kind of liminal space being Japanese, first generation Japanese American is a lot of um, what I kind of think and speak out of in ministry. Remind me what liminal space, how would you define that? I see it in a lot of different contexts now. Yeah. I think liminal space to me is like the in-between space. And so I think for BIPOCs or uh, people of color, that's a lot of what we exist in, these in-between spaces where I'm not just Japanese or I'm just born and raised in Japan. I'm not 
fully Asian American because I have this very strong tie to Japan. So I kind of exist in this in-between liminal space. Yeah. Okay. So, and I think we're going to get to more of that later when we talk about, is it diasporic or diasporic ties? Diasporic ties, yes. That's another word. I kept seeing the diaspora, and I would, I would look it up, and then I would forget what it meant. Anyway, we're going to get to that, talk more about that, because that's yes. really important to this conversation. Okay, so, Asako, I read your excellent paper, Building Equitable Teams, and that's where I learned that in 2019, you and your colleague Tristan both BIPOC field leaders from Cohort 22 in LA, recruited and led a diverse team to go on a cruise summer mission to Japan. And then in the process, you greatly enhanced the cross-cultural training that was part of a mission like that. So can -hmm. you tell us, how did you become aware of the need to rethink that cross-cultural training? Yeah, I mean, I think originally it really started with my own life, right? Like, I came to know the Lord. I was going back to Japan both for family, and then I had a few opportunities to return to Japan doing missions with crew. And I think just encountering my own conundrum and confusion of we talk about uh, race and cultural competency often within crew in mostly a stateside context. And then in a global context, we talk about like the the long-term vision is raising up local leaders. But I was experiencing kind of this, the in-between again, and this gap of like, okay, I'm kind of the like local leader, so to speak. I'm fluent in English. I have ties both in the US and in Japan. But the way that we're doing ministry and missions feels like it's like ill-fitting for me. Like, why does this feel so awkward and complicated for me to do ministry in Japan? Um, and so I think my own conundrum with these things was really the first seed as I started thinking about this, um, of how when an American team goes overseas, we bring a lot of things with us. Um, but I think we often think about an American team as just... Uh, monolithic, like we're just one, we're an American team and that's it, it's simple. Um, When in reality, there's a lot of complexity within our team internally. And then when we arrive at the host country, there's a lot of dynamics externally as well. And we're not just entering into like this blank slate, but we're stepping into historic narratives. We're stepping into a precedent that's been sent in that country Um, And so I think those are kind of the things that I was thinking about as I was asking, like, man, what would it look like to build a team where we centered BIPOCs on the team? What would it look like to have a team where we're centering people that have connections to this country in the strategy that we're doing ministry, um, where cross-cultural training is not just uh, like a one-off seminar that we're doing right before we are headed to the airport, but to actually have that be foundational and not just topical, if that if we build team rhythms and integrate it around everything that we do in the trip, what would it look like? And so my co-leaders, uh, Tristan Cabral and uh, Tamara Sanner, all leaders from uh, the West Coast, we from, really from the inception of this trip, we're asking like, what if? What if we created a different mission experience And we really believed that students absorb this. They're so much more deeply capable of understanding the need for cross-cultural ministry than I think we give them credit for. 
And I think, especially this generation, just they have an awareness and a sensitivity to these things. And they can, they know the things that feel, they feel weird, that feel off, where they're like, oh man, like there is dynamics happening. Like they understand those things, I think often better than we do. And so I think we really were like, this generation gets the need for this. I think we could really do this. And so we ended up recruiting a team that was actually 70% BIPOCs, uh, two people that had a Japanese background that were fluent in Japanese. And we really, from like the application process, like phone interviews are asking them like, what does your journey with cultural competency look like? We're asking them to verbally commit to expectations um, of like, hey, this is a really integral part of our trip. Like, this is the expectation. Like, we will press into hard things. And like, are you are you willing to like grow? Is this something that you're excited about learning more about? Um, you will be put out of your comfort zone. Um, and really almost like building like a lenses intensive within a summer mission almost. Um, but like, I think the fruit of it was like beyond what we could have expected. And I mean, I still keep in touch with a lot of these students and the kind of texts and questions and phone calls that I get to jump on with them is like just, it's mind blowing. Like they're now leading these conversations and leading their local movements in a lot of these things because they have this experience. So it's, it's been really, really, really cool. So you mentioned 70% BIPOC on this team that you were leading to Japan. Is that a reflection of the USC campus? Um, this wasn't a USC team. Oh. So this was like, uh, because Japan only has a partnership in the West Coast, this was open to anyone okay. across the country. Okay. Yeah. Um, I love that. You mentioned lenses, like this is a lens, kind of a lenses intensive because my husband's been through lenses twice in two different cities. It changed his life because it just gives mm. you the opportunity to hear so many different stories from so many people who are very, with a very different background. Yeah. Um, and for a long time, we've been talking about like, I wonder if lenses would ever go on campus. And that, this is like lenses <laughs> incorporating that type yeah. of... Um, storytelling into totally summer mission. So well done. I'm excited about that. <laughs> okay, so one thing you said that you discussed at length with your team is the reality of BIPOC. I already forgot diasporic or di- dias- diasporic ties, diasporic yeah. ties in missions. And diasporic ties referring to the range of proximity one may have to an ethnic and ancestral homeland. Can you expand a little bit more about the importance of recognizing and understanding the complexity of diasporic ties, Mm -hmm. particularly in the context of ministry? Totally. I kind of made up this word. I don't know if it's actually like an academic word, but I was like, I need need language to explain... Yes, copyright, Asako Lee. Um, I think, yeah, this language was really helpful to me because it encapsulates the spectrum of uh, what something, like you said, like the proximity that an individual might have to an ethnic or ancestral homeland. So diasporic ties, that could like, that includes both 
someone who is like uh, who's immigrated for education. So that's like an international student who is in the U.S. temporarily and whose home base is still overseas. Um, and so they have a really strong identity and connection to that place. But then there's also like someone like me who's like family immigrated. And we have occasional touch points because I still have family in Japan. Um, my parents still live there and I'm going back and forth. So I very much have homes in two different places. So I still have this really strong connection to this place. But then you also have like the American born and raised, like some of my close friends who are fifth generation Japanese American who are like, I've never set foot in Japan. And if I do, I feel really out of place, but I look like a local and that's really confusing. And so diasporic ties encapsulates that whole spectrum of like, what does it mean to really understand the complexity of all of those experiences? And so when a BIPOC student is going overseas, wherever they are in that spectrum, they carry that complexity. But we in missions don't really talk about that complexity of like whether you're a Chinese American doing ministry in Japan and you're like, oh, people think I'm Japanese, shoot, that's confusing or you're a Latino doing ministry in Brazil and there's similarities, but you're still out of place, or you're maybe like a Middle Eastern international student who's going back to their home country for the first time doing ministry. Like for all of those people on that spectrum, I think we've often thought about American, um, an American missionary as a one size fits all. And it can often feel like this, this binary of like there's a sending person and there's a receiving person. But for I think that's too too uh, strict of like a a framework to really think out of, and we carry all these complexities. And so I think yeah, to answer your question, I think for BIPOCs that don't fit that mold, and we have to carry the burden of that complexity, that is like a unique pain and burden that we carry when we go overseas, and when the people that are leading or the strategies that we're leading with don't encompass that kind of complexity, there's a lot of pain and harm, I think, that uh, is inflicted upon BIPOCs, where then it makes us feel like, oh, shoot, this strategy doesn't feel like it works for me. Am I the problem, like, that I don't fit in this mold? And so I think that's really the heart of what I think made me press into needing this reframe was like, no, you aren't the problem. Like wanting to speak to my BIPOC brothers and sisters of like, no, your complexity is not something that should disadvantage you going in missions. It's actually beautiful. It's actually how God made you. And I actually really think that that's like the future of missions is someone that has the ability to cross cultures and has already been doing that in their life and they know what that looks like. And that's actually a huge strength in missions. And so, yeah, kind of what I talked about earlier with that kind of being my own experience doing ministry in Japan and that being, um, yeah, the impetus for really trying to figure out like, how do we build something? How do we build our own table as a BIPOC missionaries and yeah, how do we create a strategy that really embodies that? And so I think particularly for this trip, um, what was top of mind for me was that I had been discipling two new Japanese Christian women um, who had come to know the Lord here uh, in L.A. And 
I just desired so deeply to invite them on this summer mission that I was leading to Tokyo. Um, but I had this inner turmoil about inviting them because I knew it was complicated. And I remember that, uh, that summer, like leading up to this trip, I just kept reading that passage that says like a prophet is honored everywhere except his hometown. I was like, man, like what is it about going back to your hometown to do ministry that you get despised? There's a different burden that there is, yeah, just a unique pain and complexity. Um, but it's not just for someone like them, like these two Japanese Christian girls. Um, I think even having conversations with different people in the Asian American community um, about our pain going to East Asia, going to Japan, that, yeah, there was unique barriers to doing ministry overseas. Um, I also think particularly in my experience, like coming to Christ in the U.S. and then going back to Japan, there's something really overwhelming about going back to your home and suddenly being like hit with like the overwhelming like darkness that you suddenly see in your home of like, oh, I never saw this before. Like the longing, the deep longing for your own people to come to know Jesus. But then often I think in missions, we talk about these, like I remember sitting in a briefing where someone was talking about just Japan being like the darkest place, being like this like, you know, like Satan ridden place. And it's like, well, yes, that's true, but it's no more truer than that is in America. And like, I wanted people to see the beauty of Japan and like the Christ reflected in Japan, just as I wanted people to see like, yes, there's idols and brokenness in Japan. But like, oh, I see that in America too. But I think often we, we kind of split those things where there's dark places and then there's Christian places, um, which I don't think that's really how the Bible talks about it either. Um, yeah, so I think we need to confront these complexities and build them into the frameworks that we're going overseas because without us confronting that as leaders, that falls on the shoulders of BIPOCs and individuals with diasporic ties to figure out for themselves, which is unfair and perpetuates a lot of these narratives. So good. This, what you were just sharing reminded me of one of the team norms and practices that you mentioned were these culture notebooks that you would have students Mm -hmm. work on. And you said that you had them make observations about the new culture that reflected and showed them the Imago Dei and then new realizations about their own cultural identity and worldview that they identified through being in a new culture. So can you tell us more Mm -hmm. about that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that was the practical way that what we were just talking about of like breaking this like kind of good, bad split Um, and training our students to have a critical eye of culture, but that that's not just pointed at whatever is like quote-unquote foreign, but also internally at themselves. So yeah, with these culture notebooks on one side, we had them write uh, observations of how they saw a redemptive Jesus-like culture in Japan. And so whether it was the level of hospitality that people experience in Japan that they're like, wow, like they, that there is something in that that reflects Jesus. Um, and then on the other hand, having them also write down kind of their aha moments um, about their own culture of, and it was just so like, like I was just like blown away by the brilliance of these students as they were like, 
dissecting and thinking about like even things just to the level of like oh my gosh like they had moments where they were like oh I thought this was like a the Christian way but actually I think that's more of just like an American way of living out this biblical principle and then realizing like even the difference between what is like quote-unquote biblical versus what is just actually American um and so we just didn't shy away from these kind of hard conversations and I think that's one of the key like tasks that is set out for us as leaders leading cross-culturally um, is to give language and identifying those key moments where there's power dynamics, where there's colliding uh, worlds of different values and actually giving like language and identifying those moments um, because everyone's feeling them internally, but we, we need to give them the language to be able to understand what it is that they're experiencing internally. And so asking questions like, like who possesses like power in this moment? Like, oh, we just talked to this student and oh, why, why was it that so-and-so who has blonde hair and blue eyes was the person that they were talking to and not maybe this other, like, and really being able to press into those moments and being like, why, why do you think that happened? Like, what do you think that reveals? Like, how do we lament like the global power dynamics that we're experiencing in this, in this context? What does that look like? Um, I think one of the like most memorable like aha moments that I remember was uh, we were in a morning meeting as a team and this was like mid trip, morale is low, discouragement is high, like our students are dragging their feet to campus, like they're like, why? <laughs> why are we doing this? Um, and so we're like checking in with everyone before we head to campus in our uh, morning meeting and one of our uh, Japanese teammates just bursts into tears. Um, and oh, I still get like choked up thinking about it. But she burst into tears because she was feeling the weight of rejection like day after day by her own people that I think to her as someone who is the first believer in our family, which is so common in Japan, um, like being rejected by a stranger on campus, that weighs differently for her. And that is not just like a stranger that she can just keep moving on to the next student to talk to and initiate conversation with. Like that hits on a deeper level. And on top of that, like she's Japanese, she's a nonverbal communicator. She's picking up on all these nonverbal cues from Japanese students that maybe our like American students aren't picking up on. So she's just carrying like the weight of something different than others on our team. And so she's just bursting into tears. And as she's kind of sharing the pain that she's carrying, uh, my co-leader Tristan shares the story in Luke of the paralyzed man and the four friends who uh, lower him to the feet of Jesus. And he just beautifully like lays out to our team, like we at different points, we will each be the paralyzed man. And, we will, and others will need to be the four friends that carry them to the feet of Jesus. And what does it look like for us as a team to have that kind of mentality towards ministry where it's not individualistic, it's actually deeply collective of how do we carry each other? How do we shoulder each other's burdens and recognize that some of us have a different kind of 
uh, power to not feel those things as deeply. And in other moments, as a Japanese speaker, she'll have different power in different ways, but how do we each kind of take our roles to carry one another? And that is like collective minded ministry. And I did like something shifted that day for our team. Like from then on, the rest of the mission, there was something different about the way that they carried one another, the way that they understood, like even being on campus, like, okay, like how do I, how do I cover my sister here? And how do I like, okay, I'm a white American. How do I use my voice in a different way here? Like, how do I actually uh, platform my other teammate here? Like there was just something different about the way that they saw like almost this team is like one organism where we all work together in this like nebulous way. Um, and I still think about that moment as like one of the most like sacred moments that we experienced on this trip. Wow. It reminds me of Brene Brown talking about vulnerability and shame and yes, the, and just the power in, in vulnerability. Totally. It also reminds me of when you talked about culture building and language, one of the categories was Imago Dei. And you mentioned mm-hmm. the book, The 3D Gospel, which is fantastic and just a must read. But I thought of it because you were touching on kind of like the shame, honor culture and how um, that, well, can you just talk more about that book and how you used it with your team. Yeah. Um, I think that book was foundational. So we had that as like pre-required reading for our team before they showed up at briefing. We had them read that book. Um, and I think that was such a foundational book for us because we really primed our students to actually have this lens of like the gospel can take form in different values. And obviously the core message stays the same, but how does that look in different value systems? And I think even like, I remember at briefing, we kind of mapped out every person's different kind of value systems of like fear, uh, fear power, innocence, guilt, like all those things that he talks about in the book. Um, And I think that was really, really important in priming our team because it gave lens to see like the cultural differences within our team. And then it also primed them to understand like there's going to be cultural differences where we're going. And what does that mean for us to get to actually take out all of the stumbling blocks for someone to actually hear the gospel in their own language? Um, And I think Once again, this is, like, where I really do think that, like, BIPOC missionaries really get to, like, have this edge where we will be the future of leading these things because it's, like, okay, a BIPOC student who already does that inherently in their life when they're, like, oh, this value looks different in my family, but it looks different when I'm out in the world talking to people that don't look like me. And so they kind of already have this grid, but it's more of, like, making them aware, like, oh, you already do that. So how do you do that when you're on mission? Um, And I think that was actually really powerful to get to empower those students, to get to be like, oh, you're actually primed to already do this. Um, And was really cool to get to watch our, like, white American students learn from them 
And even in that moment, I think we saw so much of our three scopes that we talk about in crew, right? Of like local, ethnic, global, really merge together. And they're connecting the dots of like, oh, what we're learning about in a global context actually is so connected to how I talk to my friend back on campus and how I understand cultural differences with so-and-so who's in my community. And I, I think we built this like integrated framework where it was like, oh, I'm actually seeing all these things connect, which is why I think we've gotten to be able to see some of these things really play out like in longevity as our students are now back on campus. Is it kind of code switching when you're, is, is that an example of code switching to be, you're used to having to move between different cultures mm-hmm. and how you communicate totally. in certain cultures. And I mean, I imagine even for you personally, having been born in Japan, but then you lived in Colorado, but then you went back mm-hmm. to Japan for high school and then you came back here. Like yes. you're probably like a pro. Totally. Yes. <laughs> Code switching for survival. Yeah, no, it's exactly that. And I think it was really cool for like, I mean, I remember having a conversation with one of our white students who was like, after first few days on campus being like, I'm exhausted. Like I'm exhausted of code switching. And I was like, yeah, that's real. And also getting to like have a moment with her of like, actually like that's probably what your BIPOC friends do every day, even when they're stateside. And it was once again, like an aha moment for her of like, oh my gosh, like, I'm just exhausted from three days overseas with like a whole team to do this with. But like my friends of color do this all the time by themselves just to survive. And so again, like connecting these moments of global and local, I think, again, students really are capable of understanding these things more than we give them credit for. It's awesome. Um, One thing you talked about that I loved was you talked about how, and you've touched on this a little bit with the collective, the idea of just the collective ministry. You asked this question, if we are a team family with differing forms of power and opportunities, how might we serve and love each other? And what does it mean for us to be Christ-like in our willingness to die to our own normalcy for the sake of others Mm -hmm. experiencing Christ in their normal. And you went on to say, these are some of the most transformational conversations we had with our students and impacted them far after leaving the mission. And many continue to reach back out to share how this posture has shaped how they think about engaging with communities back on campus and crossing crossing cultures locally. So this is about like whole person Mm -hmm. transformation for life. Yes, totally. Yeah, I think, once again, like, I really believe that if we build these, like, lenses, intensives into summer missions, that there's something about being overseas, like, out of your normal, like, kind of day-to-day environment, where I think we're just, as humans, more willing to accept that we're out of our comfort zone And I think there's just more of a flexibility to die to our own sense of normalcy like you're talking about. But then to get to really weave that back to our normal day-to-day and say, like, yeah, what you experience as normal 
is your normal, (laughs) but there's no inherent value tied to your normal is better than another person's normal. And I think that was one of the, yeah, once again, the foundational kind of pieces that we tied into our team um, of talking about like, what is your normativity and how biblical that is to die to your own sense of normativity for the sake of another person's normal, giving more ability for the gospel to move forward. I mean, that's what Paul talks about all the time is like, how do we lay down like for the sake of the removing the barriers and the pollutants within our own kind of culture, not in a good way. And like actually being able to speak the gospel in a way that makes sense in someone else's normal. And so, I mean, on a really practical level, like really simple things like language on our team, like with food, with experiences, like we established this team norm of like, we are prohibiting words like gross or strange or unfamiliar, like instead using non-value ascribing words, like, oh, this isn't something I'm used to. Like, oh, this is different than what I've had before. But like, I think even moments like that was for the sake of like protecting uh, our students with diasporic ties, because they feel those moments when someone's like, yeah, this is so gross. And like that hits me differently and triggers different like childhood traumas for me. Um, But I think even that led to really good conversations of like, oh, shoot, like there are moments even when we're back stateside, we're like, I'm impinging my normal on somebody else. And that's not biblical. And so I think, yeah, those are those are the foundations, I think, of cross-cultural ministry that are the same no matter where you go, that we get to actually instill in our students and say, okay, carry this kind of posture wherever you are. And this is the kind of learner that we want you to be. And this is actually deeply Christ-like in the way that we get to yeah, like incarnationally be able to be Jesus to these people. And so, yeah, I mean, I was just so impressed by the way that like we, I think you, as a leader, you hope that you kind of set those like train tracks at the beginning, but then by the end, like they were like correcting each other. They were like, Hey, like, why did you say it? Like, it was just like, so like they're teaching each other. We don't even need to be here. Like, now they're like they're pushing back on me and asking me like I'm like this is awesome (laughs) and so it's just been like yeah so so powerful to get to see that really live on in them it seems like after during and after Tokyo you had new realizations about opportunities we have to grow in our international evangelism tactics um for example, you you shared this one story about how Japan, Japanese students often saw campus evangelism as something unattainable, like the American missionaries do that, but we can't. And so I wonder if you could talk more about, you know, if the dominant mode of evangelism that they see involves asking a local of like, mm-hmm. if they'd like to practice English and learn about American culture, how is that actually um, not transferable and even setting up barriers like how can crew grow in how we do these things yeah um this was I think this kind of initiative I refer to as kind of like English mode evangelism um 
was, I think, one of the biggest, like, personal conundrums for me doing ministry in Japan initially, um, because that's, yeah, because that is the main mode of initiative evangelism, like, local Japanese staff or students don't really see a different way and so I think even for me like I would go on campus and I and like we were trained to go up to a student and say like hi my name is Asako we're from America like would you like to have a conversation with us but obviously for me like the second I say my name they're like wait are you Japanese (laughs) like why'd you talk to us in English Mm -hmm. and there's just this storm of awkwardness confusion like identity crisis of like crap like yes I I am Japanese like what am I doing um but I didn't know how to initiate a evangelistic conversation with a fellow Japanese person any other way and I really started asking these questions like why is no one else like thinking about this why is no one else like like why is there no other way and I think the thing with English mode evangelism and not to discredit the decades of faithful missionaries that have yeah brought people to the Lord through this mode of ministry. But I think often in ministry, we accredit the fruit as like evidence that this is like the right strategy to use, which I don't think that's always the case. And that like English mode evangelism actually perpetuates a lot of really harmful narratives because it assumes that one, we can only reach the upwardly mobile English speaking like population within that host country, which often like being able to speak English is connected to like socioeconomic status, like your ability to have access to education. So We have to acknowledge that English mode ministry only reaches a certain population within the host country. But then on top of that, I think it perpetuates this idea that you must be an American, often white American person to do ministry in this way. And I think what we end up transferring is that rather than transferring what we should be, which is agency and leadership. So instead of transferring agency and leadership, we end up transferring the strategies. And I think the biggest point that I think even that I wanted to really hit on in the paper that I wrote was that our strategy for like building missions should be different than the strategy that we use to build movements. Because inherently, the strategy that we use for missions is going to be incursive in the sense that it's like entering into something unnaturally. But we need to transfer the agency and the leadership for locals to say, okay, what what is the mode of ministry that makes sense? And let's make that transferable. Let's replicate that. And so, yeah, that I think for me, figuring out kind of writing my own handbook of like, how do I do ministry as a Japanese person? And I like I don't think my the two Japanese students that came with me on this trip would have come if I hadn't been there because they were like, well, we don't like we don't fit into this mold. But I guess if Asako's there, we'll do whatever Asako's doing. And so 
And I think those moments, like to me, some of the moments that we had as Japanese people talking to another Japanese person and a Japanese local person having this moment of like, oh, you can be a Christian and not be a white American. Like, oh, I never knew that. Like you're Japanese and you're Christian. Like that moment felt like often like a bigger win to me than like anything else. Cause I'm like, oh, that means that you got to see Jesus in a way that makes sense in your culture, in your context. And we, we need to reimagine our ministry strategies within crew so that BIPOC students, people with diasporic ties, aren't having to rewrite their own handbooks on how to do ministry. Because really, I think if we center people with BIPOC or people with diasporic ties and BIPOCs into our strategies and we're reimagining our strategies through their eyes, then it's a win-win for everyone because it takes the burden off of BIPOCs, but also for our local host countries, those strategies are going to be far more transferable and far more fluid for them. For them to get to see someone like me do ministry in a certain way is going to be something that's replicable for them. And so I think, yeah, we desperately need to reimagine the way that we do global missions in that. One thing you mentioned at the end of your paper is this book called The Brown Church by a UCLA professor, pastor and author Robert Chow Romero. And you said that he talks about how we must all embrace the beautiful, inevitable reality of the future of the church being multi-ethnic. I mean, every tribe, tongue, and nation is mm-hmm. biblical. That's, that's the vision. Um, and that's the reality that we have the opportunity to lean into. Isn't that right? It's happening. It, it's happening. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, seriously. I really believe that like our BIPOC students and individuals will be the future of the world of missions and that we will be better off in our witness and our proclamation of the gospel if we are able to reimagine our strategies, that we are able to really disassociate from this idea of white American Christianity. Because I think that for anyone in the global church to get to experience the gospel in a value, in a language that is more closer to their context is... I think really is our uh, our task um, as missionaries to remove every sense of pollutant and every sense of um, stumbling block that is in the way of them really experiencing the gospel. And so I really do think that is the future of the church and the missions movement and that, um, yeah, we ought to be thinking about like the people with diasporic ties will not decrease in number. (laughs) They're only going to increase in number as we exist in this globalized world. And so if we don't center them, if we don't 
include and have them lead our mission strategies, I think that would be a great disservice to ourselves and to the global church. So powerful. Thanks so much for your work in this space. Um, And I want to end by just asking you about how you're working in the space of international missions during the pandemic, like 2020 is just a weird time for everyone, but particularly for international missions, my understanding is we're not sending anyone anywhere. So what kind of, is, is this the kind of thing you have been working on is just rethinking like how we can grow when we do start sending again? Yeah, I mean, this is just kind of one of many things that I'm working on. But I think, I think in like, while there's so much going on in 2020, I think what we do have is an opportunity to really pause and reevaluate like the status quo of a lot of things and that we really get to reconsider like, okay, this has been the normal, but do we want this to be the norm? Do we want this to be the status quo that we continue or do we want to reimagine? And I really think that what 2020 has, yeah, consequently kind of afforded us is an opportunity to really reevaluate those things. And so I think I'm, through things like this paper, I'm really hoping that that's, what we get to do as an organization um, and really have an opportunity to reimagine some of these things.